Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. It's February 7th, 2018. What are you into? Well, in honor of you finally getting around to, you know, getting Perdido Street Station, um, you know, actually getting down to reading that after promising it for like the last 18 months, uh, and you finally getting past the first chapter, I have- You make me sound so bad. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You're a real monster. Um, I have picked up the alloy of law finally Yay. made good on my threats and, um, I've been moving through that, um, at a slow pace. It's kind of, uh, sharing some time slots with, um, with some other, uh, some other reading and or listening, but, uh, yeah. What do you think so far? I kind of feel like it's off to a little bit of a slow start. Okay. Um, and maybe that's because... <coughs> Sorry, I just got a dry throat here for a second. <coughs> okay, sorry. And maybe, so maybe that's because the end of the first Mistborn trilogy really ramps so hard into all of this climactic action of characters that are well-established and settings and rules and stakes and everything. And it can kind of just get to the smashy smashy. And now this is like, oh, no, now it's several hundred years in the future and we have to reestablish society and well, reestablish it for me, the reader. Like, what's the new, you know, what's the new state of affairs and who are these new characters and what role do they play in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if it's the book's fault or just my expectations, but um, I am enjoying it. I'm enjoying the kind of pseudo Wild West kind of setting time period. So far, um, it already feels a little darker than the first books, which I like because as as well constructed as I thought the Mistborn world was and as well well told the story was, it had that kind of chaste kind of PG kind of fantasy feel to it that, I mean, there's plenty of non-PG things that went on, but it um, it lacked a little bit of edge or tooth that maybe I would want from, uh, from my fantasy books. And this, this seems to have that. So, um, I'm looking forward to, to getting a little further into it. Um, and I also, in the video game front, I have (laughs) abandoned the several modern regular games I could be playing. And I've decided to get back into Bloodborne for some reason. (laughs) And, um, man, I am getting back into it. Because not only am I like, you know, it's amazing how much, how quickly you pick up on these things after you've put them down, especially such a skill focused and uh, systems focused game like Bloodborne, how quickly you just like remember it all when the muscle memory kicks in and you're good at that game again. Um, But not only have I gotten back into it that way, but I'm also like, let's let's check on like the lore community and see where like the speculations at. And if anybody's dug up any more like secrets on the game's story. So yeah, I, uh, I'm a crazy person. That's great. I'm i uh, I'm glad that you're nerding out to a game that I think is very much a Greg game. Oh yeah. And I'm also glad that you're in, you know, tentatively enjoying alley of law. I do agree that it is a little darker, a little bit edgier at points. Uh, I don't know if just like guns make that a thing that has to happen. I don't know. But um, I also feel, I mean, you'll, you'll enjoy it because it's a pretty short book. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Um, and originally this was supposed to be it for these characters, but 
they took on such a following and everyone was so excited about the setting that because he was basically his idea was I'm going to OK, I'm going to have this, you know, late medieval Renaissance setting and then I'm going to do just one book in the Wild West, you know, early industrialization period. And then I'll go to the next series, which is going to be set whenever. But now he sort of swapped things around because, he, you know, I think Wax and Wayne are some of his best characters. Wax is a little tropey, but in a way that gets a little bit like there's some meta commentary there. It's like mm-hmm. he's basically Batman. But <laughs> like, you know, it's sort of people kind of call him out on being Batman. And it's like, dude, get over it. Like, come on. Um, but he also sort of enjoys being Batman a little bit. So that's a little bit fun. Uh, Wayne's just a goofball, which is a great thing. You know, ha- having some new powers. It is it is almost like starting a whole new series in a lot of ways. Yeah. How do you how do you like sort of i mean i know you're a little bit ways out from when you read the last ones but do you enjoy sort of like little easter eggs of like things are named after people and you know the worship of harmony yes um spoilers for i guess well we won't we'll try and be vague i guess um no i think um i do like that because i mean i have to wonder a little bit because it's not entirely clear to me how the kind of world reset that happens at the end of Hero of Ages is the third book, right? Correct. Yeah. At the end of Hero of Ages, like how much knowledge continuity is there from that one to the world we're in now? And apparently some because of the way cities and streets and certain things are named and, you know, how there are religions that have cropped up around various characters from the old books. But it's also like um, Sanderson doesn't go out of his way to like take on a really... Um, distant third person and talk about how those religions, you know, how they've become disconnected from who those people actually were. He just kind of leaves it up to you to be like, that doesn't sound quite right. Like (laughs) I I knew Kelsier and that doesn't really sound like Kelsier, but like, um, no, I think it's, I think it's well put together. I mean, in his way of, you know, just really excellent, well thought out world building. Um, And I, I feel like the characters and plot are going to hold up as well so i'm i'm looking forward to where this one goes i like Um, the 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 smaller stakes and the villain is a lot of fun miles is is quite the character well i haven't Uh, met miles yet yeah but um spoilers spoilers there's a villain and he's named miles well um it'll happen very quickly but it uh it's cool and and the sort of toning back of the power level of characters i also enjoy like there's not Mm -hmm. full mistborns anymore they don't exist yes you know, it's just yes. like, so you get a lot more. And there's like some new powers added, which is fun. Uh, and all those sort of things. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad you're reading it. Uh, and I will have an update on Pretty Street Station next week. Yeah. And I also, um, so I had some time at home uh, last week. Um, a little stomach bug kind of made its way through our, our house. And, uh, so I was kind of in that state where you're just like, I just need to sit down and watch things. So the first thing I watched when I was at the height of my delirium was King Arthur legend of the sword (laughs) because HBO was like, Hey, do you want to watch this? And I was like, this is just about right. This is like just about where I am, where like, I'm so just like, you know how it is when you've spent the whole night throwing up and, you know, purging norovirus from your system where you're just kind of like shaky delirious can't really follow thoughts that much you're like all right fine i guess this will do and boy is it bad and i knew it was bad even through the haze of my (laughs) the haze of my illness um but it is a curious kind of bad that i think you know it's worth it's it's worth watching 
for how weirdly bad it is. Like it is bad in some ways, in some new and creative ways. <laughs> um, but as I was still kind of housebound, but still, but a little bit more lucid, I caught back up on Star Trek Discovery after our talk about uh, how they get into some dark universe nonsense. And boy, howdy, does that show find its feet again during this nonsense. Mirror universe, right? Did I say dark universe? Yeah. Yeah, well, same thing. Same yeah, thing. Mirror universe. Um, yeah, man, it has everything you want of dumb, weird Star Trek nonsense, including really, like, really bad fight choreography or really poorly performed fight choreography that's meant to look like these people really know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, it is vintage Star Trek in that regard. Oh, boy. <laughs> Maybe we could have left that one in the vintage. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean... I mean, it's got Michelle Yao in it, who she she is she was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Like she she does good kung fu, but for some reason, not in this show. I don't know if she forgot or if they were like, <laughs> "Hey, Michelle, tone it down a little bit." We got you know, we got Jason Isaacs over here. Uh, you know, we got you know Malfoy over here who you know he he just slowed down a little bit, um, but. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much enjoying this show now that it has given up on um, making any sense. Well, that's good, I guess. I mean, do you think it's do you think it's being? I mean, what's the what's the status like? Do are are hardcore Star Trek fans liking it or not liking it? What's the sort of pulse of it all? I don't know. Can they? No, I guess can they, can. Can they like anything? Um, look, the criticisms of it are valid. I will. I will. Uh, I. I'm not going to argue that, um, and it is, but it's like we were talking about with Last Jedi, like Star Trek is so many different things now that there is no thing that is going to make everyone happy. There is no one Star Trek that is going to make everyone happy. Um, I would like to see, I wish they hadn't bifurcated, bifurcated it in the way that like all of the like lighthearted stuff and all of the action stuff is over in the Chris Pine movies. And then all of the like ethical quandaries and character relationships is over here in Discovery because Discovery isn't a lot of fun. And so I just feel like the mix is off in both of them. Like the, you know, the, the Chris Pine movies are too bright and cheerful and goofy. Uh, um, and Discovery is too dark and brooding. And I feel like they should meet in the middle. But whatever, man, it's Star Trek and it's on TV and I get to watch Star Trek once a week and I'm happy for it. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Cause I know you, uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's good. A good correlation with the star Wars fans is like, you know, the only people who probably could be more critical and rabid than star Wars fans are probably star Trek fans. So, uh, that's, I mean, unsurprising that there's mixed feedback and all of that. So, but I, I do, I want to get it. I think that I, I'm just gonna, I've talked about this before, but I think once I have time, I'm just going to, uh, start from episode one of whatever Star Trek and just go. Hmm. Maybe don't. No, I'm Maybe going to. Maybe don't do it that way. Maybe no, look up a viewer's to. guide. There's a lot of garbage. You can definitely, you can definitely skip through a lot of, I mean, look, I love Next Generation, but I mean, if you're just trying to catch up, yeah, just get a viewer's guide, man. You can just catch the important ones. But I feel like I want to have the experience, right? Like good and the bad and the ugly really dive in. You know? All right. Well, I mean, so this is, I mean, we're probably, this is probably going to dovetail a little bit with our topic because we're going to talk about TV and how we watch it and all those things. But like, look, next generation episodes are 
you know, 45 minutes long without commercials. And they are 45 1990s minutes long without commercials. And the, and, and I also feel like next generation generation is a show where really, if you want to get the most out of it, you really want to like pay attention to each episode. You don't want to just kind of zone out. So you can't really marathon it because some of those episodes are pretty dull now by today's standards. And, you know, I, I think you, you grab a random next generation episode and it's going to be a good hour of television, but I would say, you know, yeah, get a, get a viewer's guide on that one. And also don't watch all the movies. We'll see. <laughs> I have ideas because I, I feel like in some ways for those classic shows, you almost have to sort of watch the good and the bad to for the good to stand out and show you why it's good. Otherwise, you might have a skewed perspective. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm kind of getting into you a just, little bit. You clearly just have more time on your hands than I do. No, I mean, like, <laughs> I haven't even like there's all these all these shows I want to watch. and I'm just like, oh, God. But I, I think if I made it into like a project, I have ideas. <laughs> So every week I'll do like an hour long review of the episode I watched previously. No, I'm not going to do that. But <laughs> yeah, make, a, make a one hour commitment into a into a two hour commitment plus editing time. So it'll take me, you know, five years to get through all the stuff. Uh, no, but we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, I have ideas. Okay. So on to our topic then, as you yes, alluded yes. to. Uh, what's the deal with television? No, um, oh, that was boy. a terrible impression. Uh, yeah, it's also, I, I just, you know, before we go any further, because I feel like I have to defend, um, you know, the the cornerstone <laughs> of my faith, Jerry Seinfeld. Not only is that a bad impression of Jerry Seinfeld, but it's actually a bad impression of Jerry Seinfeld doing an impression of Jerry Seinfeld. I know. Like, the whole what's the deal with airline food, that's not a Jerry Seinfeld bit. That's Jerry Seinfeld on SNL making fun of comedians like Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, fair enough. just had to get that out of the way. No, that's good. It's a little tidbit I didn't know. So, um, have you watched this new show? Um, uh, Comedians and Cars. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the Netflix episode. I've watched a couple of the original, like when it was just kind of a little, um, you know, web short. Whoever he was doing it for, Capital One or some kind of nonsense. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed some of it. My favorite one was the one with Larry David because. Larry David is who he, you know, basically create and wrote Seinfeld with. And, you know, obviously Jerry Seinfeld is the inspiration for Jerry on the show, but Larry David is the, is George essentially. Um, and just seeing them sitting in a little diner, like getting into stupid conversations about nonsensical bullshit, just like it was, it was amazing for me. It was great. Because you get the feeling like, oh, no, this is how these two, you know, incredibly rich comedic geniuses, like, hang out. But this was clearly, like, the genesis of America's Greatest Sitcom, which is these kinds of conversations. America's Greatest Sitcom. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, fight me. All right, fine. Um, I don't think Seinfeld's <laughs> funny, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, and you're objectively wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is good. These these uh, these dovetails are good because we're going to talk about TV and we want to – I want to take people back – you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, I was a child, but um, some of you were I not. was a child, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, an older I'm child. not that much older than you. <laughs> uh, Greg had already started his second career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was, but, I was finally finishing payments on my boat. <laughs> think about think about a time, you know, think about, too, when you were a kid and watching how your parents consumed tv how your parents may still consume tv a time before netflix a time before hulu hulu a time before 
really AAA television in general in a lot of ways. And so just think about that and think about now in 2018, you know, really we're looking at 20 years here is like the, a good mark because it was right around 2000 is sort of the 1999, 2000 is sort of the crux of where I want to focus our discussion. And what I want to talk about is how my thesis is that the way we, aka at least Western or American society, uh, the way we're consuming TV has changed pretty dramatically in the past 20 years, uh, or maybe, maybe maybe more accurately is in the process of a big change over the course of 20 to 30, 40 years. Uh, and that is the result of a number of major trends. And I want to talk about those trends, but also then talk about sort of, let's look 10, 20 years in the future and see where we're going to be as a result of this. You with me? Sure. Do you agree with the initial premise that TV well, has changed yeah. dramatically? Um, it certainly has. I was actually having, I was, um, this past weekend, not the weekend where we were sick, but we went over, um, over across the bay to visit, uh, grandma and grandpa park over in, uh, Delaware. And, you know, my dad is in the process of considering switching over, you know, basically cutting the cord on cable and, um, you know, going to a, you know, all streaming type mm, situation. And so we were talking a lot about just how things have changed. And, uh, you know, he, I think he is sold on the idea, you know, obviously, you know, I am my father's son. Uh, so he, like me is going to sit down and make a thousand spreadsheets about it and do a whole bunch of research to basically talk himself into something he already has made up his mind about doing. <laughs> um, but you know, he was basically, you know, talking, saying to my mom, he's like, you know, if we did this, we wouldn't have to watch Kevin can wait anymore. <laughs> and just the fact that like, he was saying that, like, just so honestly to my mom, because like, you know, they still watch TV and, and kind of an old, you know, in the older paradigm of like, you, you turn on the TV and you click through the channels until you find something that's fine. We'll watch this. And apparently for my, <laughs> for my parents, they sit through Kevin can wait and probably similar shows, of the big bang variety because it's the least objectionable thing on during the time they happen to want to watch TV. And it just boggled my mind that, you know, they're still doing that. And at least they realize they're doing that and know that there's a better way. But, um, it really reminded me of like, no, that is the way I very distinctly remember watching TV that way. It's interesting. I was also having this discussion with my mother two weeks ago <laughs> um, because she's been talking about it a little bit back and forth. You know, she still is very into some of the the mom shows, you know, the voice, the dancing with the stars, those type of things, which, you know, are harder to get via. And she wants to watch them, you know, as they're happening or, or at least very shortly with sure. DVR, which we'll discuss. But um, but she asked me, she's like, hey, could I get the Chromecast on the TV downstairs? Can I buy another one? And I was just like, who are you and what are you doing with my mother? <laughs> because a year ago you were like, what's a Chromecast? How does it work? And to the point where they really wanted, my stepdad is kind of a World War II guy, as many, you know, late middle-aged white Americans are. So he's, uh, when you say he's a World War II guy, like he's into World War II history and that's right. not, he, he did not participate in the war. No, no. Uh, <laughs> he likes to read books about the war and, you know, both fiction like historical fiction and and nonfiction documentaries the history channel that kind of stuff but they were very intrigued about man in the high castle ah. and i said like well you have amazon prime you know you can watch it like oh, okay i'm like how are you doing I'm like well you can't use the chromecast because you know the amazon's kind of a jerk and we could get you this other thing and at some point my brother-in-law must have said well if you take your computer your laptop 
and put it on a Chrome tab and then cast the TV. Jeez, oh, they've watched the entire like show that way, which I'm really? very proud of. I know, yeah, I'm shocked. Um, it's very shocking, but I'm like, I've heard that show gets weird. She's like, yeah, we're starting to get a little confused. <laughs> I think there's like <laughs> alternate realities and kind of stuff that got yep. me reinterested in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So, um, but just funny that we both are having similar conversations. But so yeah, so. The way we watch TV has changed, and I want to go through. I I put out some trends, and some are some are like trends that occurred that caused things, and then they relate to other trends. So we're gonna go in what I said like roughly a chronological order, roughly because these things are all happening sort of simultaneously. But I think some things were causes for other things. So I think the big the big disruption that really started this path twenty years ago was the idea of asynchronous consumption of television. Mm. Time shifting, as they call it in the biz. Is that what they call it? I think so. All right. Well, in, in higher ed lingo, we use asynchronous to talk about, you know, taking your classes. You don't have to go to class. You can go at your <laughs> well, own pace. So. La-dee-da, college yeah, boy. Well, um, <laughs> I just wanted it's like this, the easiest, but much, much like online education, it was the easiest parallel for me to draw. Sure. sure. Uh, but anyway, so I'm talking about this. We're talking about, you know, people being able to watch TV on their own time, not live when it's showing on air. Now, obviously, people have been able to watch VHS and DVD recordings of TV for a long time. My grandmother recorded everything, <laughs> like everything. And I'm, I've am i been in the process of trying to digitize some old home movies. And when I put in, you know, the tape, it's either like my first birthday or like six hours of Days of Our Lives <laughs> or like the 1998 Winter Olympics, right? Like those are the things that are on these tapes. And uh, it's fascinating because I'm like watching these old commercials. It's a lot of fun actually. But so this has been a thing that people have been doing for a while. I mean, I don't know when the VHS recording became a consistent cost-effective thing to do, but definitely in the early 90s at the latest. Oh yeah, yeah. We, um, We had a VCR in my house and we were never the, you know, the richest family on the block. Um, but I don't remember when we got a VCR, which means it must have been, you know, 87, 88 at the earliest. Cause that, you know, I was four or five years old and I feel like it was after that I would have remembered getting a VCR, but uh, yeah. Right. And then people, you know, they also put out seasons of TV in VHSs and DVDs as they started to take over. Uh, you know, many people have all the, I, you know, many households have all the seasons of Seinfeld sitting in VHS somewhere in a box, right? I assume uh, that your household I probably th- has that. Think, I mean, I don't think that the TV, um, TV seasons didn't really take off until the advent of DVD, just because, you know, a a VHS tape is going to hold maybe two hours. So if you figure um, we're going to put, you know, an entire season of, you know, let's say. 20 half hour shows that's 10 hours that's five cassettes it gets pretty bulky and unwieldy um and i also think that there was something about dvds that just kind of made that possible but yeah i don't think i think the only things you could really get tv show wise on vhs at least to begin with were like miniseries events Uh um Best, I've seen like best of compilations, like yes. th- these funny four Seinfeld episodes or whatever, right? Right, yeah. Um, but generally, yeah, you didn't really start to see TV on the secondary market until until DVDs hit. Right, and, and the ability to have DVDs having the menus and the navigation to be able to yeah. pick which episode you want to watch, those sort of things. So yeah, so that was a big a big step, I think. A second big step was the introduction of TiVo and, and 
DVR, more generally speaking, which happened, I thought this happened a little earlier. It was 1999 that that sort of came out. Yeah, we got our TiVo in the Park household right around the time I was going to college. That would have been 2000, 2001. Um, And that was a game changer, man. Like so much so that I became so hooked on it that I think the following Christmas, it was like, all I want for Christmas is a, is a TiVo for my uh, uh, apartment in college. That is all I want. <laughs> um, because once you, once, you know, it's like not only just fast forwarding through commercials, which is great, but just like, you mean I've got like 20 Simpsons episodes just in a folder that I can watch whenever. What? It was mind blowing. Right. So, you know, these things allowed people to more easily record, access and manage quote unquote live television. Simultaneously, what you also had happening was the introduction of the internet and illegal pirating, right? I mean, we all use Kazaa or, you know, I don't know, Napster or something where you could download videos or possibly viruses. Um, <laughs> most likely viruses. Not a lot of or there, really, to no. be honest. Uh, and, you know, this is also showing people, give, you know, all, my point is all three of these things were sort of giving people a taste of what was to come. And it obviously showed that people had an appetite for this. And then we're beginning to think, you know, next steps, right? Right. And so, the, and the technologies were kind of enabling each other because in order for me to get, you know, episodes or seasons of a TV show up onto the internet, I have to find a way to digitize them. And home DVR technology made it very easy to pull down a high quality um, file of a, of a TV episode and throw it up on online. Um, and also DVDs, you know, the DVD would come out and somebody would rip it and throw it up on, on the file sharing servers. But so it's the technology kind of catching up with each other. But I also think, you know, people got a taste of this idea of like, what do you mean? I can just watch the show I want whenever I want. And then it was just a mad dash to figure out what's the uh, cheapest and least illegal way to do this. Right. And then so therefore comes Netflix, right? I mean, they'd already been doing the shipping of DVDs and things, which is already, you know, pretty revolutionary in a lot of ways uh, and completely destroyed one industry, uh, high blockbuster. But this ability to stream things digitally, now the high speed internet was becoming much more commonplace and people had the bandwidth to do these things. Uh, they obviously exploded and took over the market. I don't need to describe that. You all know what Netflix is uh, mm-hmm. and how it's changed the way we watch, but I want to focus on how it's changed the way we watch. So instead of getting DVD sets, people could just binge watch the shows, either new shows that they want to watch or past shows that they're quite familiar with or their favorite episode of this or that. All right there. You don't have to get up and swap out a DVD. You don't have to keep track of your DVDs. You don't have to, you know, go out to the store and spend 1950 at Walmart to get the next, you know, whatever. Uh, and I, I think that this helped to possibly also expand people's horizons because if a new thing is only a click away you don't have to pay for that lowers the burden of entry yeah and that was one of the big things that netflix you know kind of started on was not only was it oh we'll we'll mail you a dvd and you mail it back to us when you're done but also we have this system to understand what you like and recommend other things for you um and you know now that's kind of become the backbone of everything we do online, but Netflix really did that first because it was solving the problem of 
for those of us that remember going to the video store to find something to watch, it was just kind of, if you didn't, yeah, sometimes you would go and be like, hey, such and such a movie is out on, you know, DVD now, let's go grab it. Um, but also it was like, I'm just going to go and wander through the horror section and find something that looks cool. This was, this was a new way to do that. It took that whole burden of hunting for things out. It, it would recommend things for you, help you to discover things. Um, and that was another huge shift, I think, um, as opposed to just kind of glancing at box art and <laughs> hoping things would work out. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I thought that Silence of the Lambs had something to do with killer bees. Um, I mean, the moth does play a little bit of a role. But, like, I thought it was, like, bees and moths are coming to kill you. To kill all the lambs? I don't know what it was about. I just saw, <laughs> uh, you know, I just like, oh, it must be, like, bees burrowing people's bodies. I don't know. So I knew nothing else about it because I was a kid, right? You're looking at the box art, and it's in the horror section. You're like, well, something's killing something, and it's usually what's on the box. So, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, it definitely helped to, you know, those algorithms that are running, those things that are suggesting things to people now. Netflix algorithms are still a little weird to me, but they haven't quite nailed it like Amazon has for me, at least. But um, anyway, the key point here is that uh, this changed the the way in which people started to watch TV. Now there was a, a I want to talk focus on this the whole episode is like a conscious choice, right? Like you said, choosing to watch something, not being forced into watching something, or not just getting oh my god the the whole sitting there and flipping through the channels for two hours is something that was a pet peeve when I was a kid and is even worse today because I'm like, you don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, even just sitting on the TV guide channel was better than flipping through the channels. Man, that was a look again as somebody who, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's a, that is in the dust heap of history, the TV guide channel, but that was another game changer. It was. Cause and there it, used to be, if you wanted to know what was on and when you had to go find a book that came to your house yeah. and look <laughs> through the book. Yeah, that was a thing that we had to do in the world. Yeah, and then like you know the obvious, you know the book to the channel, then the the app or whatever you want to call it that you have through the box that so you could actually scroll yourself and not have to wait for. You, know, you hate that we glance away for a second. You're like, oh shit, what was on TNT? I wanted to so see. So for you, you know? children, the TV Guide channel used to be a channel <laughs> on your television that played ads in the top half of the screen, <laughs> and then in the bottom half of the screen, it was just a scrolling you know, list of channels, what, you know, and then, you know, a, a grid channels on the, are, are the rows and the columns are time slots. And it would just be like, here's what's coming on in the next 90 minutes. And you would just sit there and wait for the channel you were interested in to come up. Oh man. Fucking yeah. stone ages, man. I know. So what I think that this helped to do was that uh, one of the things I want to focus on is the difference between binge watching and watching on a weekly basis. Yes. Because I think that is something that really changes a lot and I think influences all our other trends we're going to look at. So I had this realization, you know, not too long ago, maybe five, six years ago. So there's a number of shows. I used to be much more up on my TV because I was, you know, a college and then graduate student who had lots of time. I should have been spent studying, but I was watching TV and I would you know, I had my sources and I would download a lot of television or I was watching it live sometimes um, with friends, uh, some of the more popular shows on a weekly basis. And I would download and watch them. And the example I can think of is Walking Dead season two, very, you know, critically panned for being slow. Not a lot's happening. You know, you're on the farm for a million years. Most people have seen this. This is oftentimes a lot of people 
the, the point where a lot of people jumped off The Walking Dead. Yep. <laughs> um, and I watched it when it happened, and I sort of had the same opinion. Oh, my God, nothing happened, blah, blah, blah. But then later on, Shay got interested, and we we started binge-watching The Walking Dead. And we got through season two, and I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Because the concept of, you know, when, you, when you're binge-watching, I really mean, like, you know, two, three episodes at, at a minimum at a time, you know, maybe over the course of a week or two, a couple weeks. It changes your perspective of how like the flow and the pacing of a show because now it's not one episode one episode it's the episodes blend together you're watching basically a really long movie Mm -hmm. and i think that difference is really really key and i think that even for other shows that i think i i still tend to watch on a weekly basis or have to catch up on i always sit back in my mind like should i just wait well i have a more positive opinion of the show especially someone like me who gets pretty immersed in shows if i let myself um, and if I watch him consuming it very quickly, I mean, I, back in college, there were some days, oh my gosh, I watched all of Firefly in one day, which is 13 episodes. Oof. I watched, I mean, entire seasons of Battlestar in like two days. Yeah. I plowed through Battlestar pretty, pretty quick as well. And we'll get back to that one. Cause that's a good example. But, uh, what do you think about this? Would you think this is like something you've experienced at all? Yeah, I think, and I have to be, I mean, it really depends for me because it also depends on like how am I watching the show? Like, I don't know if you do this, but at least in my house, a lot of times we will just put on the TV as just the background of whatever you happen to be doing. Um, and you're kind of half paying attention and, um, and that, you know, we will essentially just marathon a show we like. And it's weird. I'm sure if you traced it, it would kind of, you could kind of see the pattern. Like, you know, we first we do some Seinfeld and then it moves and we and then we go to 30 Rock and then it's American Dad. And it's like we probably just go in cycles of like six or seven shows or whatever we happen to be marathoning in it at any given moment. But um, so for shows like that, I mean, that's kind of binge watching. I mean, if I just put on, you know, if I just put on Frasier and pick up wherever I left off just to have on in the background while I clean the kitchen, my binge watching Um but I found that when I'm binging a show that I care about, I try not to binge too much because or too much in a go, you know, in, in a sitting, because I find that I will check out after 90 minutes to two hours, at which point anything after that, I'm not really watching the show anymore. So if it's a show I really care about, I don't, you know, I, I, I want to get the whole thing. I don't want to miss half of it because, you know, you start to get distracted and then, all of a sudden you're on your phone and then all of a sudden you're playing eternal. And then all of a sudden you're seven games deep into a draft and you've missed two hours of the show that you were really interested in. So, you know, like for instance, like the Punisher, I made a careful choice to be like, I'm only going to watch max two, two episodes at a time. Unless I get to the end of an episode and I'm like, I'm really into, I'm plugged in. I want to see what happens next as opposed to like, all right, just got to power through this, get to the end. So I have to make a conscious choice uh, with binge watching because I feel like it can actually be counterproductive in a lot of ways. Interesting. I actually feel a little bit the opposite. I feel like I've been noticing a direct correlation to the shows that I really sit down and watch like four, five, six episodes in a row. I tend to like more than the shows I've picked at one or twos. So I feel mm-hmm. like I, I'm just like I'm in it or I'm not. And then I feel like I feel like I get more distracted in this one off than I do if I'm actually just like, all right, I'm in it right now because I feel like. The, the story is driving me. I'm getting pulled in and going back to the real world pulls me out. And yeah, it's interesting. But I have another question along these lines. Do you think that some of, some of these things have sort of diminished discussions 
I mean, water cooler talk shows have always been a thing people talked about, especially in the past 20 years. You know, Game of Thrones is a classic one. Uh, every week, you know, people come, oh, did you see what happened on, on Sunday? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, I, I, I didn't hear yet. Don't say anything. You know, that's classic uh, every office in America, in the world, probably. But I find that shows that just get dropped, a Stranger Things 2, for example, especially ones that we we're expecting. People yeah. are like, oh, did you watch it? Oh, yeah, I liked it. Done. Like, that's the end of the discussion. Yeah, I, I almost would, I think that, yeah, or or you don't know how to talk about it because you know you know your friends are into it, but like, you know, what episode is any particular person on? And then am I going to remember like, okay, well, Andrew's on episode seven, and Jordan's on episode six, and I want to talk to, but wait, did the thing happen in episode, did Jordan see that part? But, you know, and it just becomes too much to like, keep in your head. So yeah, you basically just be like, did you see it? Yeah. Did you like it? No. And then you're right. The conversation kind of dies. And I think for shows that kind of want to be these kind of cultural events, like Stranger Things, like I think they would be better suited to putting out an episode a week. Um, or because I think that if you want to get people talking and you want to make this thing a you know an event in people's mind, and I think that there's reason to do that above and beyond just the kind of weird marketing, Facebook impressions kind of idea of like we want this to be a event appointment viewing. I think that there is a certain kind of experience to waiting a week for the show and then talking about it with your friends. What's going to happen this week and debriefing last week's show and getting ready and getting psyched. And I think that's a fun, exciting experience for people for the right kind of show. And as a creator intending to give your audience that experience is maybe a worthwhile pursuit again for the right kind of show. Um, But I also think some shows, you know, benefit from a binge watch. I think especially comedies, um, things that are maybe a little less plot driven, a little less twist driven, you know, yeah, throw Kimmy Schmidt out there and let me just watch all the Kimmy Schmidt and get all those jokes and then watch it again and get all the jokes I missed the first time and then watch it again and get all the six or seven rounds until I get all the jokes. Interesting. I think we're uh, we're a little misaligned tonight, Greg. I feel <laughs> the opposite, but we'll get there. So let's uh, let's push forward a little bit. So okay. um, you did hint at what I talked about that this presents a new a new sort of dilemma for creators, right? Um, or dilemma or an opportunity depending on how they view it, right? So um, there's obviously been experiments in shorter, long form serialized things you mentioned miniseries which you know are definitely were definitely a big thing in like the 90s and early knots i feel like is that the phrase people are using now knots i don't know what people say that's what i've heard uh the the 2000s before the teens that that one uh and although in my experience all these are bad like i've never <laughs> seen like a good miniseries i was like you know especially from that era like oh this was really good and it's like no this is just like weird or like they're always like subpar adaptations of something it's just like ugh, okay well here's the thing about the the classical miniseries was in the old days that was the like that was where the highest production values would go that's when like movie stars would like come down off their pedestal to do something for TV. Like, and yeah, by comparison, you go back and you look at one of the big event miniseries from years ago. And it, it's like, it's got like half the budget of a mid tier Netflix show. But I think that's just a change in the economics. I think you have to look at it. Like this was a big deal. You know, the, the made for TV movie or the miniseries um, much more than, you're right. The production values were worse and, you know, the writing was worse, but that was true of all TV 20 years ago. 
This is true. Um, but another big thing that this has caused is it's caught a, it's caused a big decline in cable. You know, we just said both our parents were talking about cutting the cord. I did a little bit of research today. Oh, um, you know, obviously we know people under the age of like 40 are overwhelmingly abandoning cable. The biggest thing that's holding a lot of people back that I know that have cable are a weird because I actually have cable now, but just because if I don't pay for it, then I have to pay more for just right. the internet because so, somehow it's it's like two dollars cheaper to yeah. get cable than internet alone. Yeah, right. Um, also, sports sports is a big reason a lot of people, and that's starting to change. I guess Disney just announced right they're doing the five dollar ESPN deal so? or something. Yeah, hmm. so that's I mean that's going to happen eventually. But I'm waiting for the first big streaming service to pick up a sports thing. Uh, but according to best estimates, 22 million people will have canceled cable or satellite by the end of 2017. Um, so I did a little more digging. So there's two, roughly probably 250 million adults in the United States. So when you factor for like households and, you know, not everyone has a Netflix account, you know, you and Karen don't have separate things. Probably, um, you probably even share with your parents or something. That's probably over 10% of the population who don't have cable. Yeah. 10% of households, probably even higher than that because this is just, you know older sets um it doesn't also account for those who never had or could never afford cable that's another factor i was thinking about is like there's been a little bit of a i'll get to a little bit more about when we talk about some of the premium shows but uh a democratization or an egalitarianism when it comes to tv because now most households have some sort of device that could handle streaming or even access to it or their work does i mean a lot of people have smartphones and mm -hmm. that can handle netflix and netflix is ten dollars where cable is a hundred yeah. And I think that not only that, but there's a lot of where before you might be able might only get the basic you have the basic of cables where you get, you know, Fox and NBC and these kind of things. So you're stuck with sitcoms and procedurals where now you can pay ten dollars and get really high quality television where before that was pretty much left towards premium network or cable networks or premium networks. Right. And you can start to buy things a la carte now. You can buy HBO for fifteen dollars a month just as just just as Internet. Uh you can get stars and Showtime and all the premium channels that used to get come bundled with a traditional expensive cable service. Now you can buy those a la carte. Um, so yes, you can you can build a much cheaper television package based on just the things you want and have access to higher quality programming that used to only be available to the you know the rich kids. Right, and you know this has put as we hinted at earlier, this has put choice at the front of consumers' minds. Right, choosing. At a macro level, choosing what services they're going to subscribe to, like an, an a la carte menu, like you just described, a la carte method, uh, but also just even the micro of when we turn on the TV, what are you going to watch? Now, granted, we end up usually watching Parks and Rec for 15 times, but it's still an <laughs> active choice that we've chose, like, because you have to go and click the button and choose that and find where you want to start. And I mean, TV has gone from passive to active, I think. Yes. Now, I think that I think that there is work to be done from the streaming providers in finding a way to help me be passive when I want to be. Um, one of my favorite features in the FX Now app from the FX network is there's essentially a random Simpsons episode button where um, now it, it used to be they've changed their UI. So now it's buried in a menu and I have to go through a lot of clicks to get there. But like Karen and I love that because we just want to put on a TV show to fall asleep to. Or just something to have on in the background while we eat dinner or whatever. Simpsons is great. Um, and now, sadly, the numbers are no longer in our favor, but it used to be a random Simpsons episode. That's eh, going to be fine. <laughs> it's yeah. not really the case anymore. Um, <laughs> and I wish I could kind of like get behind the hood and be like, 
Yeah, random episode, but like weighted averages towards seasons one through nine, and then <laughs> maybe a little less from seasons 10 through 15, and then just nothing after that. Just don't even bother. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, but, um, you know, little things like that. Um, and Hulu is trying to put things up front in their UI that's like trying to make the choices easy. But those are also weighted towards the shows that Hulu wants me to watch mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, you know, what I think the dream is, is that Hulu would just know from my habits, be like, you know, it's uh, I see it's six o'clock on a Wednesday. You probably just want something dumb and comforting to have on while you make dinner. So here's some Frasier, um, you know, versus, ooh, you know, it's, it's you know, it's 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 10 o'clock on a Friday night. You, maybe you're actually, oh, man, is it movie time? Look, here's all those movies you wanted to watch. We got them ready for you. So I think that, like, because choice is great, but there's also times when I don't really want to make a choice or I don't want or I don't want to make a very fine choice. I'm just like, just put on something funny. So I feel like they could do better in that regard. But maybe that's a tangent. I mean, I, I do think that there's probably a lot of ways where, because I think right now, content providers, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever, are so focused on content mm-hmm. and not so much on the experience and the infrastructure surrounding it that I think that there's probably a lot of uh, opportunities there to be made. I, I could see right now being like, all right, you have a, a random queue that you can add shows to and that it'll pull from or even just individual episodes that you can make to kind of build a collection of shows to mimic almost old school TV watching. I could see that being a very popular thing among older people, you know, yeah. for example. While we're um, at it, while I'm making while I'm making feature requests of Hulu, um, <laughs> hey Hulu, let me build playlists of episodes so that I can like compile all my favorite Christmas episodes of TV shows and just have those in a folder. So when it's Christmas time and I want to watch Christmas episodes, I've got them all in one place. Just do that. I know you can. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll get there with some of these things. But like I said, I think right now it's to focus on content and just keeping up with bandwidth requirements and things. I'm sure that are tough. But yeah. Um, but anyway, so. Obviously, there's new players coming every day, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, but like we got Apple coming soon. Continual efforts by YouTube to try to break into the content space that's not, you know, YouTuber, YouTubers um, and like other platforms. You know, we know some big ones coming up. But like, remember, like when Yahoo did community, like these random yeah. companies trying to do these things. Um, but so I think that to go move to the next trend. This asynchronous TV watching, asynchronous consumption, the ability to record and watch later. Uh, to binge watch has helped facilitate a move towards more serialized TV. As we discussed in our Buffy episode, the late 90s and early 2000s were really the watershed moment for serialized TV with shows like Lost and 24 and Battlestar Galactica and Heroes where there was no episode of the week. I mean, it came out weekly, but there was no, today they're going on this adventure. You know, a couple of those maybe had some of those, but usually it was like, you have to know what happened last week to keep up. You have to keep up. Water cooler talk. What's going to happen next week? I don't know. No no more Law and Order one and done episodes. This is what we're on to. Yeah. And I think that in a you know broadcast TV world, it was easier to do a show like The X-Files where it was just like, eh, monster of the week. Because, you know, I, I know you're going to sit down on, on Sunday night. Is that when The X-Files were on? Doesn't matter. Yeah. But like, you're going to show up for The X-Files and, you know see what's on. Like if I've already kind of won you as a viewer in that time slot, like I don't need to win you back to come back for it next week. You're going to come back because you like the show. Whereas with 
streaming and with binge watching, I mean, with binge watching, it's like, I want you to watch the next episode, which means, you know, if you need to see, if you're much more likely to press play on the next episode if you're like, what happens next? In a serialized kind of way, rather than like, all right, let's see what wacky adventures the gang get into next time. Um, but also, even if you are doing a, if you're not doing a drop them all at once, binge them at your please kind of Netflix model, even if you are releasing them to streaming on a weekly basis, like Star Trek Discovery or the new season of Twin Peaks, like you need to give me a reason to tune back in because at least with broadcast TV, if I want to see what happens on the X-Files, like I need to be there to watch it. Like I need to plan for it. Whereas with the streaming it's like, all right, well, you know, Star Trek comes on on, I think the new episodes hit on Sunday nights. Eh, maybe I'll watch it Monday. Maybe I'll watch it Tuesday. Eh, it's always there. I can watch it whenever I want. So there's no pressure for me. The only pressure to get me to watch it on time every week and keep coming back every week or to keep moving through the binge queue is the power of the narrative and the power of the cliffhanger to get me from episode to episode. Definitely. And I think we, it's important to not forget, we're talking about cable television with the shows I mentioned earlier, but I think it's not important to get the premium networks are probably doing this first with shows like The Wire and Sopranos and Deadwood and, and these type of shows that really that's where they, they kind of came to be. And then cable and broadcast networks, you know, mimic that dumb to, you know, made it palatable and, and available for, for what, for family viewing, if you will. Uh, but cause those were kind of the kind of things I remember people buying on DVD. Cause I mean, none of my friends had any of the premium networks unless it was like on a free weekend or a free month or cause they mm. were exorbitantly expensive from what I remember uh, at that point. But, like the same price as your entire cable package kind of was really yeah. expensive. Well, and, and sometimes they were walled off behind like, you know, you, it was, it was a situation where like, if you have the, like the most basic cable package, like you couldn't add on HBO until you moved up a cable package anyway. Right. So it wasn't just the cost of the network itself, but also, ugh, you know, these fucking cable companies can't die fast enough as far as no, I'm right. concerned. Yeah. And you know, this is then since, peaked and and into what we have now is what we might call triple a tv or, or big tv like with things like breaking bad and game of thrones these big bingeable story plot driven serialized things that uh you know didn't exist 25 years ago they just didn't yeah they couldn't and you know that i also think the 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 easier availability of these things has helped progress that even further. Like the fact that you can just add on HBO now for 15 bucks means that more people are watching Game of Thrones, more people are watching other things on those networks because they're available. And to even be able to turn it on and off is even better. Like Shay is a big fan of Shameless. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I admit it's a pretty fun show. Um, a little exploitive maybe, but fun. Um, and she just gets Showtime? Cinemax? Showtime, I think. Just for the three months it's on and then turns yeah. it off. And I think Showtime's probably okay with that. Like, for the amount of people that, like, yeah, they probably maybe leave it on an extra month or two and catch something else they always wanted to watch or grab a few movies or they forget and they just keep paying for it. <laughs> Happens a lot, too. Um, so, yeah, this this is a trend towards serialized television. Now, obviously, like I said, the hot, the highest rated shows are still, well, Jeopardy and, like, Wheel of Fortune but and soap operas, but also, like, The Big Bang Theory and NCIS and those sort of things. But that is a... Because we don't get ratings from Netflix and which is that's one thing I wanted to make a side comment on is like, I wonder what's going to happen. What system is going to replace ratings? So I feel like we're going to need it at some point, but I don't know what it is. Well, I mean, a lot of, you know, the um, Nielsen, who, you know, does most of this 
work. Um, their model incorporates streaming plays now. Uh, okay. So now, but the way that works, at least to my understanding, um, is that so like like shows that are on Hulu, right? So they'll do a broadcast. You know, um, it broadcasts on the network at its normal time, and then twenty four hours that latest episode is up on Hulu, right? So like they will so like say Bob's Burgers, right? Sunday it airs on Fox. Monday it's on Hulu. Um, those Hulu plays will count towards its ratings in some way, like mm. so. Um, but where things get tricky is. I don't think Netflix, which has is a different model because that's all back catalog stuff, right? Um, when Nielsen looks at the ratings for Big Bang Theory, they're not comparing it against people who are watching Thirty Rock that night on, you know, on Netflix. I don't know how all that plays out, um, but I think that broadcast TV will die. Um, I mean, I think that every so it's a problem that's going to solve itself. It's just going to be how many streams did you get with the right people? The data is going to be a whole lot richer than anything Nielsen was able to produce because, you know, it's connected to my Facebook account. Now you know everything. Um, <laughs> but um, I think there's always going to be any any of these services is going to have some kind of just, do you just want to watch the live feed of something? Um, and we'll probably have four or five different live feeds of things that you can just tune into um and just like you know apple music has their radio stations that they call them where you just tune in and just have some random music thrown at you and you know pandora and you know spotify has a radio thing you know those continue to thrive because a lot of people like they're just sitting at their desk at work they just want to put something on and they don't want to make decisions about what's going to happen next just put on some stuff that i like i think you're always going to see that in whatever your streaming provider is but how long is it until Comcast is just a streaming provider? I mean, it's kind of what they are now. I mean, it's all just bits and bytes that come into your house. They just yeah. call one of them cable television, and they call the other one internet. But um, And people rely heavily on their DVR and on demand for those things anyway, right? right? I mean, how many people are actually sitting down and watching live television? It's for, like, you know, besides older people who are just, you know, glued to the TV at, at night. I don't know. It's a good question. But... Um, I do think that this, so to move forward, asynchronous consumption and an emphasis on serialization has in turn led to higher budgets and higher quality television. Yeah. And I think that goes hand in hand, that higher budget, higher quality with some changes in the film industry. Um, there's a theory that goes as the international market has become more important, the kind of middle of movies has disappeared. Um, so think about like mid budget movies, like a lot of comedies and, you know, romance movies, um, you know, character dramas, they're kind of disappearing because, um, they don't make any money overseas. So movie studios don't want to throw that much money at them. They're happy to throw some pennies at an independent small production that doesn't have any stars in it because it doesn't need to make a lot of money back. But then if they're going to spend a lot of money, well, then they're going to go make the Avengers. But then there's all those movies in the middle, like, you know, Anchorman would be an example of an, a, a mid-budget movie that just doesn't get made anymore. And the argument is, is that all that talent that used to make mid-budget movies has now gone to television. And that's where the money is. Um, 
And that's where, you know, and you see a lot of, you know, people who we used to call movie stars and now they just make TV shows too, because that distinction between like, you know, you're no longer slumming it if you make a TV show. Right. I mean, there used to be a model of first you do ads and then you do soaps and then you do TV and then you do movies and then maybe you do Broadway or something like that. But like, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what, like, that's what, that was the model, right? Like when yeah. someone left TV, they didn't go back. George Clooney did not go back to ER except for that one episode, I guess, after or whatever, you know, after he broke out. Right. Right. These things didn't happen. But now it's the opposite. You've got mixing and matching and all kinds of things. I hate mean, hey, this is a bad example. This will talk about my head, but like Kevin Spacey, you know, yeah, <laughs> big movie star did a show on Netflix. That was, a, I think, that was a big watershed moment to have such a big star commit to a streaming platform, right? Right. Um, not talking more about him, but <laughs> this blurring of the line between TV, movie, and not just actors, but directors and yes. writers and producers, like they're all doing all kinds of things. I mean, every day it's like, oh, J.J. Abrams is doing a sci-fi show for for what amazon next yeah who amazon knows? after or no who, hbo after game of thrones is done it's just like sure why not like that's what you do now or before once again they had that path where oh yeah jj abrams was that guy who did loss and then he made movies after that right like that's not what it is anymore and the focus on i mean budgets are going through the roof i mean game of thrones budgets are huge absolutely huge i mean to the point where they put together they are movie budgets in some ways oh yeah and i think this has led to obviously better effects, uh, but that's not what drives quality by any means. But the focus on storytelling and performances, because you get better writers and better actors and better everything makes for a better show. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a minor point. It's sort of a byproduct of this, but also it's these things are all driving each other and feeding off of one another. Um, but I think all of these have led to the second to last trend I wanted to point out, the number of trends, <laughs> is a dramatic change in the formats of seasons and episodes, right? So both seasons have changed, what we think of as a TV season, and also how what we think of an episode has, has changed pretty dramatically. So obviously seasons have gotten shorter across the board when you're looking at AAA television, whether it's streaming or premium or broadcast. Now, premium shows were already shorter back in the day, but... They continue to get shorter as Game of Thrones is at what six episodes for next season? <laughs> I guess. I guess. Who which knows? started at you know ten, uh, but the old model of television was what 22, 23, 24 episodes for every show, if, comedy, if not, sitcom, if whatever. More. Yeah, even more for some like kids shows and things. But that's I mean, their shows still exist, and I want to talk about a couple of them and why I think this is a good transition away from these seasons because. There's an encounter example that I want to bring up. I was told about today by a friend at work, but um, not having to stretch a story across 23, 22 or 42 minute episodes allows you to tell a much more condensed, singular and more conducive to serialized storytelling. It also sure. allows more budget in individual episodes yep. instead of having to stretch, you know, two million, two million dollars across 24 episodes. You can stretch it across eight. Makes yes. a big difference. <laughs> Especially when you have CGI characters and all kinds of bonkers stuff that we have nowadays. I will say that I'm I'm with you. I like the idea of not being bound by old broadcast models, um, which allows an individual episode to be as long or as short as it needs to be. I like that because I feel like, you know, let the people who are making it do the right thing for this particular piece of art. Um, and also the length of a season. Is it eight episodes? Is it 10 episodes? Is it 13 episodes? In theory, this is a good thing. 
However, I think that there are too many shows who have not fully embraced this freedom. And I think the example of this is the Marvel Netflix shows, which the Punisher being probably the best exception to this, uh, where it really maintained its momentum and its interest all, through all 10 episodes. Whereas because for some reason they feel compelled to do 10 episodes, each one hour long, 13 episodes. Oh, is it 13? Yeah. They're all, except for defenders was six, but they're all oh. 13. Yeah. Defenders felt like 30. Um, <laughs> But like, yeah, they ha they feel like they have to do 13 episodes at an hour long because that's like, oh, that's a prestige television show. It's 13 episodes. Yeah, but now you've got four or five episodes in each one of those that are just dumb wastes of time because they feel compelled to stretch this thing out. Um, and it, they end up putting in a lot of filler just to meet some old model. So now I know that like Master of None um, in their season two, they experimented a lot with episode length. Um, to just, you know, this one's 20 minutes, this one's 40. And just cause that's what it needs to be fine. I want more shows to take that Liberty. I think there is something to be said for un having a feel for the rhythm and the feel of a show. Um, you know, because you get that kind of, you start to feel when the hour is almost up and you know, Oh God, how are they going to get out of this one? Um, there's some value to that maybe, but like, we can do whatever we want. Why are we still doing this? Like, it's, you know, uh, 43 minutes long, even though you don't have commercials. <laughs> right. You still have it timed out as if there were. It's just, it's very strange. Yeah, I mean, this allows all these changes, you know, different length episodes, longer, shorter, depending on what it means. It just allows more creative freedom for the creators, right? Also, not having to break for commercials is a nice, like, treat too, because that forced structures of things, right? Yeah. Um, and rhythms of episodes and, you know, sort of, made for that very formulaic thing you expect from like a sitcom or a procedural. Now we're seeing a lot of variability. Like you said, Master Run's a good example, you know, even on cable, Walking Dead will have a 55, 60 minute finale or last two episodes because they can and because they want to. Game of Thrones obviously has done some variable things. Um, I really wanted to point out that like, when you go back and watch an older model, it shows. When you go back and watch the DCCW shows right now, when you go back and watch even some stuff like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I'll talk about how they're playing with the model a little bit, but, you know, DC shows are just so stretched out. It's like 23 episodes, man. Like, really? Ugh. That's so many. And, you know, I'll say this. Making a compelling Monster of Week television is really hard. Like, harder than making a singular six-episode season of something that's really pointed and singular and serialized. Like, making a compelling reason to come back every week and watch that, that's hard. To make it quality and you mm -hmm. know the show i think is surprisingly still doing it well as supernatural somehow but <laughs> you know i honestly do like they're half the time the the monster episodes are the episodes like better than like the serialized episodes that kind of sprinkle in um but in the you know because the problem is they're lifting stuff and making these shows serialized to your netflix point but then like dumping in a three times as much filler and one-off episodes that really don't contribute and stretch out kind of trite plot lines like oh he's keeping a secret from her for six episodes and she's like oh good golly stop and you know it's really showing the strain that like they can't hold under that weight so you need to free these free the shackles man like let these shows be what they need to be uh for everybody like there's been some things like legends of tomorrow was a shorter run which like worked well for that first season it was eight or ten episodes something like that's like fine that was a good little tight storyline that was enjoyable 
Now, I mentioned before, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is doing this thing where they're splitting their show in almost like three mini-seasons that correlate with breaks. Because like these shows also have breaks that go on for two or three months at a time, depending mm-hmm. on what's happening at any given point with television or seasons or whatnot. You know, winter breaks and spring breaks and Olympics breaks and, you know, all these different things they do. And Rage of Shield says, no, no, we're going to tell a complete story in seven episodes. And then we'll tell another story in nine episodes. Then we'll mm-hmm. tell another story in ten. And it's like, and usually there's some things that, you know, carry over all of it, which was which was nice the last season. But I was like, okay, that works. There's still fluff. Like this most recent, I just finished the first kind of arc, much like comics. This this comes from a comic. So the first arc of this season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, where they're fast forwarded in time <laughs> till the earth is exploded and they're in space. Sure. It's bonkers. Okay. It's bonkers. But even that was like, this could have been trimmed by two or three episodes and it would have been really good. Instead, it was just okay. Because, yeah. you know, just like some fluff and some things that didn't matter and all these different things. So I do think that television still has some flaws and they're still working out some of these things. Your Netflix example is a really good one that I wanted to bring up. Also, like television's hard in that to tell these stories because, well, are we getting a next season? When do we end a show? Do we have an end game? You know, the best story starts when we know the ending, right? But not we when, when the creator knows the ending. Like, how do you really add stakes to these this is starting to be worked out, especially as we work with adaptations, because those oftentimes have a beginning, middle and end that mm-hmm. people want to tell. Um, sometimes they don't or sometimes they did. And there's room to explore. I think Handmaid's Tale is a good example of that. Like there's more room in that universe to work and we can do more there. Other things, you know, maybe not. But I do think there's a lot of room, like you said, to, to there's, we're still shrugging off some of the weight of what TV is and was. Yeah. And I've been I've been banging this drum for a very long time that, you know, um, you know, if you look at like the model in most other countries, they just make a season or two seasons of a show and then walk away and then it's done. And then if you want more like this, well then follow the director to their next project and it's going to be fine. Um, but one of the reasons I think that, you know, a streaming service should feel more liberated to just do, just do one season of a thing. Like Stranger Things did not need a follow up or now a third season, um, because I feel like the the idea used to be well in the broadcast model. Like we got all those viewers last season, we want them again this season. You know, we want to bring them back. Um, and if we don't make this exact show another season, this is we're going to lose those people, and that was true. But now, like because well, if if I'm let's say Stranger Things came out on NBC, right? Well, we ran it. It did great in 2017. I can't just run run this again in 2018. Like, that's crazy. That is not how TV works. But the truth is, with Netflix, you make a great show that people like. You're going to continue to collect value on that show as people rewatch it, as new subscribers come on and watch it for the first time. So you're going to get value out of Stranger Things further down the line without necessarily having to make Stranger Things Season 2. Um, and it will be, and it's very easy for Netflix to say to you, Hey, did you like stranger things? Well, here's the Duffer brothers next project, you know, even stranger things, you know, it's just to move you from one to the other. It's very easy without having to dilute your good things by, you know, having them be anything other than a one-off. Yeah. And I think we're at a point where people are more cognizant of creators and 
writers and directors of things when they were maybe 20 years ago. I mean, people knew who Matt Groening was, who Jerry Seinfeld was, but other shows, did they know, you know, oh yeah, that was the guy who made MASH. It's like, I don't think anyone knew that, like, or cared that much because TV yeah. people aren't personalities where now they are. Right. And it was more of a star driven model and you would follow actors you liked from show to show. Right. Um, but, you know, and that, and then you would, you know, sometimes you would be able to, you know, kind of be like, hey, we made a show like the other one, but that was like with spinoffs, essentially. Right. Um, or you, you know, they started to come up with these branded franchises like Law and Order. We're like, yeah, if you like Law and Order, you're probably going to like SVU. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's another thing where like, we're there, y'all just need to be braver and, you know, not force the Duffer Brothers to just keep making Stranger Things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just have to make tie ads. Those were awesome. Um, so this brings us to our last trend, uh, which is kind of a vague, big one. But to wrap it all up, this is harkens back to what we talked about in our 2018 looking forward episode is that this all these things put together have brought about a really a golden age of TV that has an increase in both diversity and quantity of shows. I mean, there is just so much out there now. So much coming out down the pipeline. I mean, especially in the genre area for us, the kind of things we like to talk about and like to, like to kind of watch. I mean, we're pushing the boundaries in every direction simultaneously. We're doing adventure shows. We're doing sci-fi shows. We're doing more speculative sci-fi shows, more goofy sci-fi shows, you know, horror shows, every, every which way, anthology shows. It's all happening. And a lot of it's been at best fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, or sorry, at worst fine. Uh, you know, even something like a Stranger Things 2, which you were not the biggest fan of, it still wasn't, like, terrible. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the depths of how bad network TV has been in the past at points or is now, right? It's still miles above that. Um, genre television's also at a all-time height in popularity. I mean, the biggest shows people talk about are Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, Black Mirror, you know, what else? That's what people talk about at my work, and they're all, they all make fun of me because I'm a nerd. <laughs> but it's just like that's what they're talking about in their cube next door over, right? Um, would you agree with all that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of Game of Thrones proved to a lot of executives that genre fiction can make big, big money. Um, I would argue that Game of Thrones is successful because it used to be an excellent television show that happened to have dragons in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that genre is working very well. I think it's a tough time right now for sitcoms and um, conventional sitcoms, I'll say. Um, and I think that there's a big question of how does unscripted television play into all of this? Because right now, you and me, our conversation has been firmly in the realm of scripted television. and But unscripted television, I am consciously avoiding using the word reality here. <laughs> um, but unscripted television um, is still a huge business. Um, and that, I believe, is not a style of television that holds up well with a back catalog. You know, I don't think a lot of people are going back and watching old seasons of Shark Tank. <laughs> can, can you tell Shay to stop putting on old seasons of House Hunters? That's all we've watched for about two months now. Is, is she going to listen to me? No. <laughs> um, so I think that's a big piece of this. And, you know, and also if you notice that a lot of, you know, where the energy is in terms of like where Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and these guys, where they're throwing their weight into content, it is in 
you know, scripted, generally high concept, high production value TV shows. Because those make a big splash, you know, some stupid contest where somebody wins a job or a husband or maybe a husband job. Um, <laughs> like, that's that's a tough sell, like, if you're Hulu. Like, I, um, so I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, where are things going? I mean, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think that the market is going to bifurcate or trifurcate, or it's just going to split up enough to the point where, like right now, you get Netflix, you get Hulu, and if you want, you get some kind of, you know, live streaming service, and you basically, you got everything. But, you know, pretty soon it's going to be like, well, you get Netflix, you get Hulu, well, and you're going to want Disney's package. And then you got to get HBO. And then you got to get this and the other thing. And it's just going to get to a point where, um, yeah, we're going to be buying things a la carte, but you're going to have to be buying a lot of things a la carte. And that's going to add a lot of cost and complication for a lot of people. I had a, th- I had a thought just occurred to me, actually. So I have some other ideas about where we're going to go. But do you think that we'll see more, not just content providers, but studios or creators, you know, like I said, probably more studios and, and production companies that become more focused on the style and the content, the genre they're in? Like something like I was saying, like a, like a Crunchyroll, right? Which is Netflix for anime. Yes. But it's just anime and apparently quite a good service from what I hear. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see a different sort of, you know, multi breakdown where, well, now this company, this is the sci-fi one. This is the fantasy one. I mean, that's not how things are organized under rights right now, but especially with Disney just gobbling up everything. But I've always wondered if that's something that we might see down the road where it's more the style of thing you like, as opposed to, and, and even when you get in further, like even whole, as if genre fiction as visual medium sticks around, which I think it's going to, mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing holding it back was effects for many, many effects and also just culture willingness to embrace it as something sure. that's worthwhile. And I think we're over that I for think- now, at least. I think that like, could you have whole production studios like, no, no, we are a fantasy production studio. And because of that, we are hyper specialized. We've got all the swords. We've got all the orc <laughs> masks. We've got all the castles. Like it, you could really double down on that. And I think there's something there. I don't, I, I don't think so. I think you'll see, I think that you're going to see the big studios, the big production houses, Disney. I think Disney is the model to watch where they say we have all the content and we're going to be giving it to you through our streaming service. Um, And I think you're also going to see people who own the streaming service try to become content creators. And then all the big guys are going to be a combination of streamer and creator. Um, Because I think that's the way the, the way the business models are going to work. Like, um, I mean, I think there are some really specialized producers out there. Like there are studios who all they do is make horror movies, but you know, in order for them, I think, to be viable in the market, they need to band together with other studios um, in order to make a service that's worthwhile. So I don't, th- I, I don't think it makes sense, you know, if I'm a studio to specialize in something that might, you know, um, you know, fantasy might disappear, um, and that and now I'm stuck with all these sorts. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, if I'm, if I'm the person, you know running the studio, I want to diversify. I want to have a bunch of, you know, ways to make money. So, um, it makes sense. I think what, what will happen will be the really big guys will have their own services. And then you'll see the little guys banding together into little mini Hulus, 
Um, and some of those probably will be genre focused. And there already are some that are a little that way. You mentioned Crunchyroll. There's Shiver, which is a all horror streaming service. But I think that's mostly for like independent stuff. Um, um, but I don't know. It's going to be real weird for a while. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of, I mean, I think we're seeing every day there's news that comes out about this is, you know, this company's buying that company or this show is getting added to this streaming service or this one's changing hands. And it really seems like we're going through a big, the next big shakeup. So we had the initial, I think, wave of just like, oh my gosh, Netflix is a thing. And now it's like, all right, well, Netflix is a thing, right? Not the thing. And I mean, I think there's other rooms to explore, other areas to explore. I, mean, I think we talked about, like, we mentioned that curated streaming service, like, to your point about bringing some of the passive back, like just mm-hmm. being things delivered to you. And that's a route that's very interesting. I think a lot of people will be interested in. I also think that, you know, we'll obviously we'll see the continued slow death of cable. I think sitcoms, many sitcoms are on the way out. I'll use reality TV, you know, unscripted television. <laughs> I think that a lot of people are going to be over that because that is for passive viewing. Like you said, very few people go, I want to watch two seasons of Desperate Housewives in a weekend. Like, I mean, some people do, but I think less people... Less of those people will be around the more we move forward, for lack of a better term. Um, I think we'll continue to see increased blurring of TV, miniseries, movie setup with Netflix and all getting in the movie game. Mm-hmm. You know, Bright and Cloverfield 3 dropped on us unexpectedly. Those sort of things. You know, I think that because of that, we talked all about the rise of anthologies and how that's, that's going to be a big wave. But I also think there's still a lot of room to push the extremity of shared universes across TV movie providers. You know, there's no reason why you can't have a bright movie and then a bright TV show, then another bright movie. And then, you know, more of that, not that we need more of that because the movie is not very good, but (laughs) uh, I think there's, you know, but continually, you know, we will see, I think more of that um, across platform potentially, or maybe just all in one platform because you don't need to have it be on different platforms anymore. Yeah. I I think you're right. I don't like I don't like that vision of the future, but that's clearly the way things are going. I mean, Disney is, you know, basically announcing like, yeah, we're going to put out like three Star Wars movies a year. Plus, we have multiple Star Wars television shows in production. And that's just too much Star Wars for me. I'm I'm feeling a little exhausted on shared universes in general right now. Um, But I think that's the way things are going. And the idea that if you want any Star Wars, you have to get it all from this service. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you want any NBC sitcoms, you have to get them from this service. Uh, that's just the way things are going to go. Because you know now that Netflix and all these guys have proven out the technology and proven out the business model of we can produce the content and deliver the content. Once they've proven that out, now it's just going to be now the big guys are going to battle for who's going to control the market. So, yeah, there's two other ideas I had. One was, you know, the idea of very long running, but like high quality shows, right? Like someone sits down and says, I'm going to make another Breaking Bad, but it's 10 seasons. And I'm telling you that from the beginning. And I think that these streaming services are a lot more willing to be like, all right, dude, let's let's queue it up. Like. As opposed to before, where it was like every season was like, oh, you know, we have to sort of make sure we kind of wrap things up just in case, you know, because yeah. we're not sure. We're gonna, like, I think there's room for like much more long term strategic planning from some of these content providers as they make new content. Uh, and I also think we'll see actors. I think actors are m- becoming more willing to sort of be like almost going. It's weird. It's weird. It's kind of cyclical thing where a lot of TV actors were just like, yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be, you know, I don't know, whoever for the next 
20 years. I don't yeah. like it's a, it's a stable job. Like the guys are supernatural. Like they've been doing this for 13 years. Like they're good. Yeah. But big name actors, that's not, you know, they need to do different things or whatever, you know, the Tom Hanks and whoever other world. But I think that increasingly there's people, you know, I, I said that movie stars are, are increasingly becoming okay with being like, I'm just going to be blank man for the next 30 years. I'm okay with that. Spider-Man, Batman, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think we'll see more of that on TV too. Like, yeah, I'm willing to commit to a 10 year contract with the show because why wouldn't I? I wanted to be an actor. I grew up watching these things now. You know, I grew up excited about superheroes and about fantasy or whatever bullshit. Sure, I'll, I'll take the next Ned Stark role or whatever it is. Um, cause that traditional path has been kind of disrupted. Yeah. And you can, and you can do both now you can spend, you know, two months out of the year shooting your TV show and then two months out of the, out of the year shooting a big movie and, you know, always have that TV show every year to, to fall back on, which is, you know, great news if you're an actor. Right. And that is one thing that I um, forgot to mention earlier about the model changing is it frees up actors because it's a lot easier to film eight episodes of Netflix show than it is to film 23 episodes of Arrow. Because you're literally stuck filming the entire year. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how he gets away to even do the Ninja Turtles movies or whatever he's <laughs> in on the side. But, like, it's very hard for him. And they actually talked about, like I mentioned last episode, that the, doing the big crossover was really, really hard for them. Because that's not how those studios are designed to, yeah. to make things. But, I don't know, there's a lot of interesting, uh, interesting, I think, routes that we'll see occur. I think we'll see some more blurring of lines. Another interesting thing is, like, streaming services getting in on old school content. Like Netflix made a couple like really garbage Christmas movies in like the vein of like a Hallmark or a yeah. you know whatever channel Christmas Prince, which we we always have the habit of uh, tradition of watching those bad movies at Thanksgiving and Christmas time at Shay's household, and um, you know I, I came home and you know we 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 watch it to laugh and you know do the old riff tracks on it, but I came home and I'm like. Hey, mom, did you watch those uh, Netflix Christmas? Oh, they were so good. You know, because she just has the Hallmark Channel on 24-7 or the holidays. So it's interesting to see them sort of like taking a step backwards. Like, I I don't, but there's a market for it. So why wouldn't they? It's cheap for them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and why, why not? I mean, that's, you know, and I think that's the great thing for creators and for viewers right now is that they're willing to take chances and experiment. You know, Hulu, Netflix, all these guys are willing because it's still the Wild West. They're trying to figure out what works. Um, you just have to hope that they don't look at Christmas prints and say, like, boy, ROI on this was really good. I think we found our new <laughs> business model, boys. Um, yeah. You know, and ditto for all the other uh, studios that they don't, I, that they, they continue to, like, take chances and do weird stuff. Yeah, I think the competition is so fierce they have to. Yeah. Especially among people in our generation, because we're not going to watch. I mean, we're going to watch Christmas Prince to make fun of it, but we're not going to watch it 18th. Well, that one guy did. Apparently we will. Apparently we will. (laughs) But so anyway, uh, I really wanted to talk about this. It's been brewing in my mind for a little while now. Uh, Thank you for indulging. And I think it's something that people should engage critically as we are setting off into this new frontier of, you know, visual media consumption. Yeah. And this is a chance for us as the consumers to shape the way things are going to go. You know, this is this this new era of television in terms of, you know, the business model and how things are made and what gets made. Like, it's still very new and there isn't conventional wisdom about what consumers want. So, you know, this is a great chance to get out there and uh, watch the things you like 
don't watch the things you don't like and advocate for things on, on, on Twitter and social media because, you know, um, we want to get more things like Stranger Things and less things like American Pickers. And the way we do that is like we have an opportunity to do that now. Whereas in the old model, you watched what they put on and um, maybe they'd make a change. But everything was already set in stone and the, you know, the, the, um, the wheels were turning. But now we have a chance to like kind of shape this a little bit the way we want it. I mean, obviously, Disney and Amazon are still in control, but they at least at this point care about what we want. And uh, let's make them work for us. A Not little. what Greg wants about Star Wars, though. Yeah, no, what I want about Star Wars, which is <laughs> one movie every two to three years. Done. <laughs> <laughs> nope star wars every day <laughs> all right well, i guess I think, that wraps it up i think that about wraps it up for us um you got any tv you want to tell people to watch um you know we've really been into like house hunters like house hunters renovators which is where they Don't, do like they stop, buy the stop stop it <laughs> uh you know i haven't been watching much i've been trying to catch up on you know other tv uh but i would recommend you know, I really want to go back and, and watch some of these earlier serialized things. I never really watch. I don't really want to go watch Lost, but like, no, you don't. Um, it's maybe, awful. Maybe I'll go watch like a Heroes and see like how does that hold up to, to now. And like, I don't think it held up then. Uh, fair enough, but go watch. Star I do. Trek. I do. I do want to go back and watch some of the older HBO shows like that. I've heard so many. Like I haven't. I've never watched The Wire. I've never watched Sopranos, and I've heard they do hold up because yeah. they were just well made shows. I mean, I know a Deadwood certainly does, uh, but yeah. So I. I mean. TV. I'm just, I'm just excited for black Panther, but yeah. Well, I would say go watch, um, the end of the fucking world on Netflix. Is it good? I've been, I've been, it's that up. really good. Um, it, it, it's very, very good. Um, it is dark and it is grim, but, uh, it's, it's really good. It's good. Worth, worth a watch. I'll watch that then. All right, guy. Well, um, I guess we'll talk next week. Yep. See you next week. Later.